0: Would you be happy if Primos was in exactly the same position a week from now um, with the time gap that he has over Mass? If he got to the second rest day the second, in the same position? Yes. Because there's also still a week of racing, uh, racing left then.
1: But uh, no, if we continue this second week and we the, at the next rest day we have the same situation, uh,
2: yes, I'm happy. My feeling is that the weather will be kind of weird things will happen so we have to be attentive. Are you right? uh, yeah, without the crash would be even better, huh? but uh, yeah, it's uh, not too bad. Huh? So uh, yeah, it was, uh, was some action, huh? <laughs> uh, and yeah, uh, no risk, uh, no glory, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was good.
3: You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 10. Today we are in Rincón de la Victoria.
4: Well, we open tonight's podcast with Adi Engels, sports director at Yumbo Visma, Sports Director, Movistar, and then Primoz Roglic, who was in the red jersey at the start of today's 10th stage of the Vuelta a España. We'll get on the significance of that in a moment, but my name is Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Good evening, Richard. Good evening, Lionel. And we are with Danny hamon friberico um, <laughs> Hello,
0: Rich. Rich. As we speak, um, Primoz Roglic's agent, Mattia Galli, is just walking past. He's just going to say hello. One word, Mattia. Hello. <laughs> well, Hello. Uh, as promised He doesn't do interviews, so that's all we're going to get from him oh.
1: <laughs>
4: Well, that's a world exclusive um, Yeah, I got some help with the pronunciation of uh, Friberico So um, that works quite well uh, Andres C- Cabrales, a Colombian friend, also suggested Daniel Fibrero For the Spanish Daniel But Daniel, we heard a little montage at the start there um, we heard Addy Engels and Pachi Vila, both of whom you spoke to at the start this morning, and then Roglic at the end. Uh, quite interesting hearing what, well, what Addy Engels and Pachi Vila had to say at the start this morning, given what happened in the stage.
0: Well, it was stargazing, both of them, weren't they? Um, Addy Engels suggesting they'd be happy if the situation, if status quo remained for the following. For the next week, was he being disingenuous, chaps? Did he know what Primoz Roglic had up his sleeve, what he was plotting today? And Vila predicting rather mystically that weird things might happen in this year's, oh, sorry, in this week's Vuelta stages. And and I suppose it was slightly weird. I mean, a a chap called Odd Christian Iking in the red jersey—that's weird enough, isn't
4: it? Imagine if he said odd things could happen. That would have been even even we'd be bestowing all sorts of things on Pachi Vila at this point uh, but it, yeah I mean it's a, it's a second week that, that was a bit uncertain wasn't it because the, these are stages that look challenging without being super difficult and I guess we might have expected a bit of status quo that's not really what happened today um, and well lots lots seems to be up in the air tonight can you give us a tale of the Etapa please Lionel? With
5: pleasure, Richard. Yes, stage 10 from Roquetas de Mar to Rincón de la Victoria. Uh, As as you say, a sort of classic transitional stage, but with a strategic second category climb quite close to the finish and crucially a tricky descent from the summit of that climb. What we saw was a second stage win from Michael Storer of Team DSM, uh, just as impressive as his first last week. We saw Primoz Roglic, who was up and then he was down. And we see the red jersey now on the shoulders of Odd Christian Iking of Antamarche Wanty Gobert, absolutely blowing out of the water. Daniel's conspiracy theory that the Antamarche supermarket were somehow unhappy with uh, their riders wearing a Carrefour sponsored red well, jersey. I mean, we let's can put wait. that rumor to let's, bed now. Let's can't wait
0: we? to see what he turns up <laughs> to the start tomorrow.
5: <laughs> a, a red jersey and a, a Carrefour red jersey, disguised by some Antomarche plastic bags, bags. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was one of those stages where it took a long while for the break to go. Uh, it was not until um, around a hundred kilometres to go. So after about ninety kilometres of racing, that a big break of thirty-one riders went clear. I'm not going to list them all, but the crucial thing was that three teams had three riders in there. AG2R. EF education and DSM crucially of course one of them Michael Storer Astana had a couple Uh, Bora had a couple including Max Schachman
0: The lesser cited Max Schachman in this Vuelta thus far chaps um, hasn't been terribly prominent in the first week in fact I caught up with him this morning to ask why that was and, and how he was feeling this is what he said i've already booked
1: a a flight for my legs from japan to here i don't know if they make it in time Uh, i don't know what happened i'm missing a bit my usual form uh it has been a hard week so far but yeah unfortunately you haven't seen me poor old shack
0: there still hasn't relocated his his tokyo legs i've heard of airlines i've heard of
4: airlines losing luggage but not losing legs so Good, I don't luck. Good luck with everything up I don't
0: know. I think Ryanair could probably could probably make a,
5: a go <laughs> a <girl> of that. <laughs> This episode of the Cycling Podcast is brought to you by Ryanair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Let's move, move swiftly on from from Shaq, shall we? The other riders in the break, or the other teams with a couple of riders in the break, Caja Rural, Cofidis, including Guillaume Martin, significantly. Ineos had a couple in there, including Dylan Van Baarle. Bike Exchange and UAE, also represented by two riders. Uh, the, the, the lone freelancers including Mary van Severn of De Kerning Quick-Step, Kenny Ellison, King Kenny of Trek, and Odd Christian Iking of Anto Marche. And he was the best placed overall and was virtual leader um, most of the afternoon and, in fact, all the way to the line. Uh, the, all of the action really happened on the lead into the, the climb. Um, There was an early attack by Matteo Trentin of UAE, who was marked by Alex Adambrudu of Astana, and that forced a little bit of a move away. And then on the climb, we saw Rui Oliveira uh, of UAE take over at the front briefly. Then Kenny Ellison had a go, but it was Michael Storer who made the attack that stuck. He went with around 19 kilometers of the stage to go, and soloed to the line in really impressive style again. Behind in the GC group, which was a long, long way behind, Primoz Roglic attacked on the climb. He gained a little bit of time going over the top, but then on the descent, his back wheel slipped. He went down, he was in the dirt, his chain was off, and then he was caught by the next three riders on GC. That was the two Movistar men, Enric Mass and Miguel Ángel López and Jack Haig. So for a while, we had the top four on GC all riding together. They were then joined by Setkus, Felix Grosschartner and Alexander Vlasov to make it a group of seven. And the significant absentee there was Egan Bernal, who lost a little bit of time. So, an impressive second stage win of the race for Stora. Second over the line in the next group was Maori Van Severen, the only rider in the race named after 1991 Welter winner Melkor Maori. And odd Christian Eiking, who was fifth over the line in that group, goes into the red jersey. The ROG group eventually came over the line, 11 minutes 49 down. Bernal and Adam Yates lost 37 seconds to Roglic. Ciccone lost a little bit more. And so we've got another real shake-up on the GC with breakaway riders climbing all the way to the top of the standings. Eiking, just the second Norwegian to lead the welter after Tor Hushov, is 58 seconds ahead of Guillaume Martin who did something very similar in the Tour de France. He climbed up to second place in a break before slipping back to ninth the very next day in Andorra. What does the race now have in store for him? Uh, is he just doing a gross sharpener or is he now a threat? Uh, Primoz Roglic is now third at 2.17, but may well, despite the fall, think that it's a reasonable day because he has gained a little bit more time over Bernal, although he hasn't shaken off the Movistar duo or Jack Haig.
3: You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to Supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
5: Thank you very much to our title sponsors, Super Sapiens. You can find out more about Super Sapiens at supersapiens.com. We're going to hear again from Aska Jurkendrup, who is a sports scientist and nutritionist for the Jumbo-Visma team, Primoz Roglic's team, of course. Let's hear a little bit from Aska about Super Sapiens and how it can help all athletes, pro riders or just uh, regular cyclists, Improve their fueling and improve their training?
6: So, this is really like this is the key question, the million dollar question, I think is like, can we link the glucose data, which is simply giving us a concentration of glucose in the interstitial fluid? That's essentially what it's measuring. And can we link that in some way to performance? We have to start with where we do know, where we do have the evidence. And an example is, our, and we, we have all experienced this after a long bike ride without food, we suddenly uh, lose our power and we start to feel a little bit dizzy. We start to feel hungry. Maybe we even like even on a warm day, you may get cold. Those are all signs that your blood glucose is dropping and, and dropping quite, quite a bit. So that's a clear situation where we can link the glucose concentration to performance. That situation where your glucose goes to those low levels, we call that hypoglycemia, is also something that we can get in short rides. For example, if I eat and then forty-five minutes jump on a bike and start riding, it is very likely that twenty minutes into the ride, or maybe 10, 10 minutes into the ride, I get a very similar feeling of uh, like lightheadedness and uh, and maybe. Uh, power is not quite there so those are situations where um, we we do have evidence that uh, that hypoglycemia can affect performance now the the beauty of the glucose monitoring is that we can now see that this is starting to happen before you actually get the feelings and it's too late because you get the feelings when your glucose is already really low and we all know that it takes a long time to recover from that so we, we get early insights and that will help us to prevent that hyperglycemia.
4: Daniel, it sounds very bustly where you are. Where, where exactly are you at the moment?
0: Well, chaps, I'm looking out over the, the Mediterranean, um, just well, a few meters really from the finish line, just on parallel street on the, on the seafront, in fact, at Rincón de la Victoria, uh, packed beach and yeah looking out towards africa one of the, one of the southernmost points of spain where well, the southernmost point is just off the coast punta de tarifa and i think i mentioned earlier in the vuelta didn't i that odd christian Iking was the had the northernmost birthplace of of the riders in the vuelta so that's that's odd, oddly apropos isn't it yeah
4: or ironic i guess um well he is one of the stories of the day uh uh, an amazing turnaround, but it shows the uh, you know, he, he has been battling to sort of keep a reasonable position on GC alongside Louis Menke's, his teammate, um, and and that's paid off today, hasn't it? But we'll get on to him where we're going to speak first about Roglic. Um, you know, it looked like being a fairly routine day, uh, other than the fact that he was handing the red jersey over to uh, another rider, but not a rider who is really a threat to him. Over the, over the course of the Vuelta. So, the situation looked to be perfectly in control, really. Uh, for all that Guillaume Martin may be an outside threat, I think they, they would have been pretty happy, as Adi Engel said this morning, with the status quo. Then we saw Roglic launch that attack um, and take some risks on the descent, um, for which he paid. I mean, he seemed reasonably relaxed about it at the finish and not too badly hurt, but... Um, I don't know that I would agree that you know his uh, sort of no risk, no reward philosophy really paid off today because he took a he took some risks and he did pay for them. He will be hurt. Uh, It's not going to help his recovery and it won't have. It's it's put a little dent in his uh, in his in his hopes of winning a third consecutive wealth. I would have thought no.
0: I think if you'd offered Primoz Roglic the result that he got at the end of the day this morning, he would have been delighted um, to have put more time between himself and Bernal and Yates, and and they continue to slip down general classification. Um, So I think on that score he'd be really happy. My my concern with it is the sort of mental another layer of of mental scar tissue, uh, another sort of heart in mouth moment in a Primoz Roglic attempt to win a a grand tour or even a stage race you know these there seems to be drama wherever he goes nowadays and it reminded me of the the crash he had or the mishap he had on the guisalo when he was trying to win the giro d'italia in 2019 and 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 that giro sort of went downhill well metaphorically it went downhill from there and you know it's it's well documented we all know you know the mishaps he's suffered since then, whether it be Paris-Nice or the Tour de France last year, so I, my, my big concern is is on that front, really um, particularly, you know, when you look at the, the stages to come, and there are a number of uphill finishes, starting with tomorrow where you would have thought he could have gained a a cheaper advantage. Tomorrow looked absolutely perfect for him, the finish, and, you know, you think about the the time bonuses that he could claim there. It was quite a big risk for, I suppose I agree with you, Rich, relatively meagre reward, as far as Movistar are concerned, at least. Another thing I was going to add, chaps, I don't know if you noticed Rog drop back to the team car at 55 kilometres to go, or thereabouts, and he had quite a long conversation through the car window with Grisha and his direct sportif which made me, well, it was, they sort of went back and forth, and I wonder whether they had discussed the possibility of an attack this morning in the bus, and that was a kind of last check to see whether they were going to go ahead with it.
4: Sam Ullman at the finish said that, that had not been the plan this morning, but that Roglic had decided mid-stage that he was going to attack. So, so that that could have been the moment where that discussion was happening. And you know, if 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 Adi Engels and Grisha Nierman are on the same page, then they may have been making that point, Daniel, that it was uh, it wasn't perhaps the best day to do that. That that there was the you know it wasn't just a simple uphill finish. There was that descent, quite long descent, and quite a sketchy descent to be negotiated as well. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I Bernal and, and Yates already, it, it's hard to imagine them turning things around, I think even after Sunday. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the, the threats are now coming from the movie star Joe and Jack Hague.
5: Yeah, I mean, that's the puzzler about this move, really, for me, because putting Bernal and Yates a little bit further back, obviously is an advantage, but... <laughs> It's a, it was a strange move by Roglic to um, to think that he could really do too much damage to Mass and Lopez today, as you say, Daniel. With with tomorrow looking like a, a much better chance, and yeah, he said at the end, "No risk, no reward," um, and that's to be admired, really. I suppose we, you know, we've we've criticised GC riders for just sitting and waiting and biding their time. Um, it's good to see the leader of the race you know, going forward and trying to make things happen and trying to increase gains on slightly unexpected days. But like you say, Rich, it's not just the fact that he didn't gain any time on Mass and Lopez. It's the fact that he hit the ground. And whether that's, uh, you know, whether it's just sort of light bruising, it's still going to have an impact on, as you say, his recovery and and, and possibly, um, you know, sap a little bit of his power Uh when he needs to call on it in the coming days so a, a, a tricky one really you can't really criticize him for trying it but if it wasn't the team plan you know, maybe there will be some heads being scratched around the dinner table this evening and chaps when i
0: when i was thinking about well what i just said the the this idea that there is some mental scar tissue there with roglic that and these these Sort of mishaps have, have multi- multiplied over the last year or two. I also thought about the, the penultimate stage of this welter, and, you know, it seems a long way off but Jumbo Visma have already talked about the time trial and how that's really the, an ace up their sleeve but the penultimate stage of this welter is a really nasty one with multiple climbs and descents, nasty descents up there in Galicia and, you know, the way Grand Tours have gone over the last few years I think it's legitimate to expect things to be pretty close there um, certainly the way Mass is climbing, the way Superman is climbing. I had a flash not back but forward when I saw Rog cr- crash on that descent this afternoon. And I was just thinking, allowing myself to think of, of that penultimate stage and how we could possibly come under pressure there. It's a sort of perfect terrain for a, a Movistar ambush. And I don't know, I, I, I'm slightly, slightly nervous about what... Marvistar might try to do to Roglic on the descents. Now, we should also caveat it by saying that the the descent was pretty nasty, and a few riders mentioned that after the finish. Not just the descent, in fact, there were a few roads today. There was a little bit of rain, in fact, I think just before the peloton came through in a few places, and a lot of the roads were quite slippy. It reminded me of what what riders tend to say in the south of Italy. And um, well, in fact, Kenny Ellison, he was in the break and he also told me at the finish that he'd had some nervous and very nervous moments on that descent.
1: In the first corner, my two wheels uh, went slipped, and then I lost the confidence for the world. On in, I had the impression it was ice, so it is really slippery there. And earlier in a, in a stage when it was a little bit wet, you know, there was some guy crashing, so I said, okay, um, once I I I knew uh, the the wind was. Uh, was lost. I said, okay. I prefer to take
0: care in the downhill. Stay with uh, Guillaume Martin and uh, Nick Schultz. You said that as well a few days ago, Kenny. That you had a, your wheel slipped. Um, has that been a bit of a problem over the last few days? The confidence on the descent? No, I mean uh, here,
1: like we, we know it's super slippery all the time, and uh, we saw a few crashes. And Guillaume Martin in front of me two two time like went almost uh, lost the front wheel. So then you know you're a bit like okay. Uh, I prefer maybe being eight and uh, you know not being uh, sculptured And uh, because our the Vuelta is still long, and I have some work to do for for Julio, for Chico. So if you win, I mean, if you play the win, like okay, full guys, you take the risk. But then I was uh, ten or a nine, or it was pointless. I mean, it's never pointless, but I, I prefer to take care. Are okay, you shake shaking. Is
0: it the adrenaline still?
1: <laughs> it's it's chilly, no. You're not cold. <laughs> now I'm, uh, yeah, adrenaline, huh?
7: <laughs> Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a US based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone all backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.
4: Daniel, um, or Danny, uh, should I say, uh, you mentioned um, the, the Movistar threat, and that's o- obvious, but also the Barry and Victoria's threat because they they have a very strong team. Jack Haig is getting better and better, I think, in this Vuelta, and he has some pretty strong support behind him um you i think spoke to him at the finish and it's interesting not the first time he's made some comments about movistar as well and being slightly puzzled by the way that they were riding today
0: i did rich
2: there was a bit of headwind there as well in the climb so it's a little bit surprising to see him have a go but uh i'm happy it keeps the race interesting and uh made some for some good gaps there at the end i think I uh, just rode past him quickly and made sure he was okay. I said, oh, you right, mate? And Yep, no worries. So uh, he seemed to be pretty good. Every day I'm getting a little bit more confident. Um, and yeah, today was a good uh, good test again.
0: Did Primoz look nervous at all on the rest of the descent?
2: Uh, the most confusing thing for me on the descent was Movistar and the finish there. They are, they have numbers and we're distancing Bernal, the Tour de France and Enduro winner and... I'm not sure if maybe Mass was a little bit nervous on the descent, or but Lopez was, yeah, a little bit odd. I expected more cooperation from, I obviously didn't cooperate on the climb, I was pretty pinned. But I said, when we get to the flat, I'll do my best and let's try to put some time into these guys. They, they helped a little bit, I expected maybe a little bit more cooperation, because it's not like we're distancing uh, someone that's a little bit unknown, we're distancing a champion. And how was the descent generally? Was it sketchy? <laughs> I don't know if it's sketchy, but it was one of those roads you looked at and uh, it definitely felt and looked like it was incredibly slippery and uh, I'm maybe a little bit more tentative now after the tour.
0: Well, chaps, by that stage or by that time, I was sort of running around trying to get interviews with the, the guys who were coming in with the brakes. So I wasn't paying as close attention as you probably were to what was happening in the GC group as they, well, as they got into the second half of that descent. I, I guess that's what Haig was referring to. That it was at that point that Mavisar weren't really pulling as hard as he expected and wanted.
4: Enric Maas looked a bit tentative himself on the descent. I thought um, he, he didn't look s- totally confident. He was distanced a little bit at one point. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm not really sure. I mean, he he would he had the, he had the, the the bird's eye view, didn't he, of what was going on? So he'll know. He'll be able to tell exactly how they're riding and how. Um, how united they seem as a as a as a pair, um, and whether in the you know ultimately whether one one will be able will will be willing to sacrifice himself for the other, you know if if there's a better chance of of if there's a chance of one of them winning, um, are they both prepared to sacrifice a podium spot for a teammate winning? That's the big that's the big question. It's always the big question when a team has two riders in that position. Um,
0: but you know, Movistar as well, yeah. Rich. They've been in this position before, if you remember the 2015 Tour de France, I think it was, when Quintana and Valverde finished second and third and they were criticised thereafter for not risking enough and seeming to want to consolidate those podium places.
5: Yeah, the thing is, though, here there was nothing to, there was no reward worth having, really. I mean, they, they would have seen Roglic go up the road, realised he'd crashed. They're on a descent that, that was tricky and technical and then a, then a run into the finish, they weren't going to drop Roglic. I wouldn't have thought just by riding hard there, and they didn't. They didn't need to really make too many gains over the other riders behind them, because in a way, Movistar also need the likes of Bernal and Yates, and perhaps you know some of the others who are who are still within um, touching distance of Roglic. They actually need them to still be in with a shout and have something to something to fight for, because having allies may well be um, helpful later on in uh, Wildtown.
3: Science in Sport is supporting the Cycling Podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport fueled by science.
4: Thanks very much indeed to Science in Sport our sponsor of All Things Cycling Podcast all the shows um, including uh, Cycling Podcast Femina which uh, a new episode of which came out this week. If you want twenty-five percent off all your science and sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. SISCP twenty-five. Um, now two other um, people in the news at the world today, Odd Christian Eiking, the new red jersey, and Michael Storer, who has added a second Vuelta stage win to a palmares that already included the Drummond Trophy. Uh, in scotland and another another great day for for scotland with michael story winning um i mean what a rider what What a rider rider. incredible yeah i mean he's something else isn't he i mean he is uh you know you mentioned i think the day the the lack of definition in his legs daniel um and and this huge engine that he apparently has and he's been a hard rider to Uh, sort of imagine what sort of things he could do. I remember him in breakaways at the Vuelta last year and and him being a deceptively good climber. Um, But what he's good at, clearly, I don't know who to compare him with, but he is, at this Vuelta, what Soren Krau-Anderson was for the same team at the Tour de France last year. He's won two stages.
0: It's funny, isn't it, chaps, how there's a a pattern of this happening over the last few years. Well, three times it's happened. Um, I can think of where guys who have taken wins in breakaways, maybe slightly unexpectedly at first, but have clearly had really good form, have then done it again shortly afterwards. And I did, I mean, I'm kind of kicking myself for not saying this in the podcast, but I really had a strong feeling the other day when Stora won his first stage that he was going to do it again. And um, the others in the previous few years who, who did the double in the same fashion were Ben King and Thomas Martzinski of um, Lotto. And um, you know, I guess you get to this point of the season, and form levels are quite, quite different. Um, there's quite a big variation between the, between the different riders, and there are stages in the in the Vuelta that really lend themselves not just to breakaways going to the finish, but the strongest guy in breakaways um, being the one who crosses the line first. Because you know, that was as soon as the the group came towards the the final climb pretty much together i know there were various attacks there were various attempts to go off the front it was always likely that the strongest guy was going to win and that immediately made Stora one of the two or three favorites and sure enough he was the strongest
5: well daniel team dsm came into this welter having had a pretty barren season especially when they'd had such a good year last year with um the the type of aggressive racing that that we saw at the tour de france but it's all come good for them in the last month or so really
0: yeah it certainly has and we keep talking about this kind of inflection point uh, four or five weeks ago when a big part of the team did a training camp in austria and and that's yielded several fantastic results already, a win for Bardet, vuelta uh, Burgos in a stage there, Stora's winning Tour de l'Ain, his two wins now in the Vuelta and we've mentioned it a couple of times already um, in the in the past two weeks or so, we spoke to Matt Winston about it as well. Um, Chris Hamilton, uh, another Aussie DSM rider, well he stopped at the mix zone after the finish and And we touched on that again, how the season has turned around and also spoke a little bit more about Stora. Chris, the the team's having a great run the last few weeks. It seems to have been a real sort of reset in the summer, particularly with that training camp in Austria. Is it just the luck that's changed or did something kind of concrete change in the messaging that the directors were giving you or things that you guys were doing?
8: No, nothing's changed. Like, I mean, yeah, everyone worked you know super hard to be here and uh you know with Matt, Matt Winston, he's yeah he, he's uh it's so, on your case yeah 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 but I mean he's he puts the pressure on but he's also you know he's he has the experience he's a really understanding guy and you know he's just he's super devoted to it and every day you know you can if you have him in the ear you can just hear the passion that he has for it and it's it's really motivating for us and um yeah, if, if we're not here for, for GC, we, we really want to give it our all and, and make the most of stages because, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not so often that you get this opportunity because when you're riding for GC, like, it's, you know, every day you have to be so focused and, and switched on and, you know, you don't really have your eyes on being in the move or, or, or racing uh, as aggressive as this, so it, it's, yeah, it's it's a bit of a, sometimes can be a nice change, yeah. He told
0: us the other day Michael wouldn't hurt a fly. He's absolutely butchering some people's legs out here.
8: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, super quiet, humble guy. But yeah, put him on a bike and uh, yeah, in a bike race, ride and training and stuff like that, and yeah, you pretty quickly see he's uh, yeah, he's got some aggression in there too. So chaps, Chris
0: Hamilton, well confirming really what he told us the other day about Michael Storer being a, a baby-faced assassin, um, but well, one, one curious thing I've noticed over the years about Michael Storer, um, you, you guys tell me if you have seen any other riders that has this habit, he, he very often walks to the sign-on in the morning. And he's, he's almost unique, as far as I've seen, um, among professional riders in doing that. They, they pretty much all go on their bikes. Michael Storer, he likes to have a, likes to go for a stroll to the sign-on podium in the morning.
4: I have not noticed that. I've not noticed that with him, and I haven't seen any other riders doing that either. Roglic likes to go for a walk in the morning, doesn't he? He does. There's another, rider, there's another rider who likes to go for a jog in the morning, but I can't remember who that Jan is now. Jan Tratnik. I told, Jan Tratnik, that was it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I haven't noticed that, but I'll I'll look out for that. It was interesting to hear Chris Hamilton talk about Matt Winston as well. Um, And, you know, a few weeks ago, everybody was very down on that team for their very rigid sort of discipline. But when things start to go well, then you sort of look to the team and say, oh, maybe they are doing some things right after all. It was interesting what he said about Matt Winston's passion and enthusiasm. Um, And if you want to know more about the modus operandi of that team, we released a friend special earlier this year. Um, all about the team with interviews with Matt Winston and others uh, sign up as a friend of the podcast at thecyclingpodcast.com now um, odd Christian Iking, the other big story today taking the red jersey just what you were saying interesting what you were saying um, about you know the 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 problems for that team of uh, being uh, sponsored by a big French supermarket and, and now having to wear a jersey with a rival French supermarket on it is that why those riders never target the uh King of the Mountains jersey at the Tour de France because it has the, the other big French supermarket Leclerc on it it could be could be one reason who knows but um, as I said earlier Odd Christian Iking has been up there you know he's been not too far away on GC um, and that really paid off spectacularly today didn't it
0: yeah it did Chaps and he's been riding very well for a few weeks now I think he, well he had a bit of a layoff a long layoff in fact in the spring and he suffered quite badly from Covid and he was stuck in Mallorca for for several weeks and I think he came back to racing around about, I think he did the San Sebastian Classic and since then has been getting better and better but he's he's an interesting character uh, a bit of a, a maverick by all accounts, I don't know if you remember but he was actually sent home from the Vuelta in 2017 for Well, he claimed just going out for a couple of drinks, two beers, in fact, the night before the final stage in 2017 when he was riding for what is now Groupama FDJ. And the team manager, Mark Maddio's response to that was, well, if he only had two beers, he wouldn't have been drunk. Um, According to Maddio, he sort of staggered staggered back in to the team hotel in the small hours. Um, But, you know, I mean, after a long tour, I'm sure you're... After a three-week tour, I'm sure your alcohol tolerance does go down a bit. He might have only taken two beers. They might have been <laughs> La Choufs. They might have been, you know, very strong beers.
5: They might have been a three a three-pint jug.
0: Exactly. Two three-pint <laughs>
5: jugs.
4: <laughs> exactly. Well, you can ask him about it. No, yeah, yeah, perhaps. but he,
0: he has uh, this reputation as someone who doesn't necessarily always follow the party line. Um, a bit of an individualistic rider
5: well yeah i mean it's curious really because you know he's a what sort of rider is he i mean three pro wins in his career he's 26 um a stage win of the tour de wallonie and a stage win of the arctic race in norway his home race or one of his home races of course uh, I remember him at the Tour de France a couple of years ago. Um, I think he was one of the victims for outside the team bus early on in the race, the, perhaps even the day that the race started in uh, in the team's sort of de facto hometown. Do you remember that, Rich, somewhere in... in where, I can't remember where that was now. Outside
4: the team bus being the short-lived feature um, well, that you did, Lionel, where you, you did something really revolutionary and you interviewed... Interview cyclists, cyclists outside their team buses.
5: Yeah. Well, the idea was to try and interview somebody from each team uh, over the course of the race because we, you know, I, I felt we focused on particular riders or a particular collection of teams, and it was a chance to go and talk to people that we might not have have done so. And uh, but yeah, here. I'm he joking.
4: Is. I mean, it, it was only short. It took a global pandemic to well, put an ex- end to that.
5: <laughs> exactly. But here he is. I mean, he's, you know, he's not a not a climber necessarily. He's not. Not, he's obviously not a prolific winner. Um, he does get in breaks. It's really paid off, not just sort of sitting up and, and drifting back to towards the Gruppetto in the mountain stages, because he was clearly close enough today that if the gap for the break went high enough, he would be um, he would be taking over the red jersey. And I mean, it's not the sort of thing that you can do really by design. But he must have known once he got up the road and the and the gap went up to three minutes, four minutes up to over 10 minutes, that uh, he was in an absolutely fantastic position and uh, he made sure he didn't didn't slip up. He, he even made the final five-man split that finished around 50 seconds ahead of the rest. So a really impressive ride. And the question now is whether or not he can uh, hold that lead uh, any longer than his teammate Rain Taramay did earlier on in the race. Of course, Taramay had a couple of moments of misfortune in the red, red jersey, didn't he? And lost it because of a crash. What do we think Iking's... Um, prospects are of keeping the red jersey tomorrow looks tricky for him with an uphill finish, but we'll see Well Guillaume
4: Martin very well positioned as well, and a rider we know more about more of a pedigree as a, as a GC rider, could he be the Oscar Pereiro of the Vuelta this year?
0: I don't think so <laughs> don't Well, think that, so. I'm, o- I'm only I'm asking
4: want... that Daniel in <laughs> order to set you up for your, <laughs> your Oscar Pereiro story
0: My Sobrero story?
4: Oscar Pereira story oh, my Oscar
0: Pereiro story yeah Oscar Pereiro. how the mighty have fallen yesterday morning he shared the well he was in the same laundrette as me looking sort of staring glumly into space um, no one helping him no one folding his jocks for him just Oscar and me in the laundrette um, but I don't think I don't think Guillaume Martin is going to be the Oscar Pereiro of the of the World Day España. Interestingly, the I don't know if you chaps remember. Well, we we mention it almost every day, but the Movistar documentary um, on Netflix. It's obviously become a a sort of accepted, recognised idiom in Spanish cycling now to do a Pereiro. Um, i.e. to get a lot of time in a break and hold on to win we of course always talk about doing an atapuma don't we riding a a tour a la atapuma i.e. going for general classification by not going for general classification by falling way out of general classification which then enables you to get into another break and move up and that's kind of what guillaume martin is, is specializing in this year because i think that is ultimately that's going to be his fate at this year's Vuelta. I think he'll probably cling on. He might well get the red jersey and then he will subsequently lose it around maybe on the weekend or um, one of the stages in Asturias, probably at the very latest. And then he might well still end up in the top five or, or top ten on general classification. But tomorrow I don't think odd, Eiching, um, odd Christian Iking will have too many difficulties in just because he's got 58 seconds. and It's a really difficult finish. Uh, Val de Peñas um, has hosted the Vuelta, Vuelta stage finishes before very very steep, some 20% pitches but it's, it's only a short climb it's a couple of kilometres and I, I don't think he can lose 58 seconds there what will be interesting is to see how well his desperation, his efforts his team's efforts to keep the red jersey will impact the general classification and impact when I say the general classification I mean that the real general classification between Roglic, Mass and Superman and you know whether they can control the race tomorrow uh, in such a way that Roglic can go for those time bonuses or that time bonus at the end of tomorrow's stage because um, as I said I think it's a perfect finish for him tomorrow but In order for the race to come back together, I don't think Jumbo-Visma are going to control it, are they? It it would probably occur if a break went down the road that was kind of dangerous for um, odd Christian Eiching. And Intermarche had to react for that reason. And then Jumbo-Visma maybe took took over in the final part of the stage.
4: Well, I think we're going to hear from Guillaume Martin, aren't we, Um, Daniel? You spoke to him at the finish.
0: Yeah, for sure. I thought about it. I...
1: I knew that I didn't have uh, really good legs, but uh, I didn't know uh, or his legs uh, were. I think at the end everybody was uh, super tired, we didn't climb it uh, really fast, but um, I tried once to attack, but uh, I think he was uh, uh, at least uh, as strong as I was, so I wasn't able to, uh, to drop him.
0: Guillaume, now you're going to be close again on general classification and I guess that takes away your freedom to go in breakaways is the focus now to go try to go for the red jersey yeah I think I have a few days for that
1: uh, there will be opportunities and uh, aching is not uh, is not uh, can have a ba- bad day also so yeah I will try uh, uh, every day and uh, I will give my uh, maximum well I imagine
4: um, Guillaume Martin would be a man who appreciates the writing of Laurie Lee the great English writer who I've mentioned before during our Vuelta coverage he um wrote a book about well the book's called As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. It's a book about walking through Spain as Spain was on the on the cusp of civil war in the nineteen thirties. It's a brilliant book. Um and I was just flicking through it again today and a passage caught my eye. I thought this was I thought this was worth reading out as you're in um Laurie Lee Country uh, tonight, Daniel. Um because it's a book about youth as well and vigour and, and energy and ah, no. curiosity. Oh, uh, yeah, now, now, I can you're see you, now
0: I can see why you want to read it out.
4: Uh, yeah, well, I, it just it occurred to me there were parallels here between Laurie Lee and his great walk and the, the professional riders of the peloton of Vuelta. Um,
0: oh, I thought you were going to say parallels then, between Laurie I, Lee and his uh, No, no, not you. No, not you. Okay. I
4: forgot everything but the way ahead. I walked steadily, effortlessly, hour after hour in a kind of swinging, weightless realm. I was at that age which feels neither strain nor friction when the body burns magic fuels so that it seems to glide in warm air about a foot off the ground, smoothly obeying its intuitions. Even exhaustion, when it came, had a voluptuous quality and sleep was caressive and deep like oil. There we go. Um, Go and read Laurie, Laurie Lee if you haven't already. Swing. But also listen to our latest episodes of Kilometre Zero. Uh, Monday's was the latest installment of our audio diarist, John Bow, Bo, uh, James Knox, and Pavel Sivakov. And Tuesday's was a conversation with Scott Thwaites, who's writing his first Grand Tour since a terrible crash a few years ago. Um, so, caught up with him in the first week, and we hear from him talking about that crash and his decision to come back to cycling. We also released, as I mentioned, the second podcast, Femina. That includes interviews with the Olympic road race champion, Anna Kiesenhofer, Rachel Naylan and Lotta Capecchi as well. So, that's out as well this week. Where are you off to tonight, Daniel?
0: Well, Rich, before we get on to that, you mentioned Drumbull, um I spoke to the Lynx of Marbella this morning.
4: Oh, Do you know yes. who that is? Luis Angel Mate.
0: Luis Angel Mate. So we're in his in his home region today, not too far from Madbeya, and he was raving about our audio diarist. He uh, so he's got a very bright future. The links, no longer the links of Madbeya, but the links of Euskadi, the links of the Basque Country, because he's riding for for that team, and he's having a great uh, time, yeah. enjoying himself. He said, you know, it's a it's a lesson to everyone; they should follow their heart in life because the he's best. followed he's followed his yeah. heart right up up the the length of Spain into the Basque country
4: and it's it's interesting on that because uh Joan Bo as well is from uh Valencia and they used to only employ riders from the Basque country didn't they the original Uskatel Uskidi, but that's obviously no longer the case and uh, they've spread their net a little bit wider um but we should wrap things well, up for sh- this evening. Re- Sorry, I, I don't think you, I don't think you answered my question. No, did you? no,
0: no. I no. was before I before I do answer I was also going to mention that we're going to hear from Guillaume Martin again tomorrow in another episode of Kilometer Zero about ah. Fabio Aru, who's riding his last right. professional race here at the West. Espana. and um, Rich. Tonight I am heading or well, heading north of Malaga into the wilds, um, into the into the mountains, my natural terrain, and we're quite close to tomorrow's start, actually. Talking of the start, did you, chap, so, well, I guess it wasn't televised today, was it, the start, but um, we were in Roquetas de Mar, famous, infamous, of course, for its, for its greenhouses. greenhouses, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Mar de Plastico, the plastic sea, this enormous expanse of greenhouses that you can see from space and which are... Responsible for a huge boom in the last sort of 20, 30 years in agriculture and the, well, the economy in general in this, in that region in Almeria, um, the Almeria province, but which is also often the subject of well, some serious misgivings, you know, about the nature of the farming, the the kind of labour being used there, um, the welfare of the workers uh, in those greenhouses, but it, um, yeah, that was the backdrop very much the backdrop to the start of today's stage
4: well Daniel as you set off into the wilds tonight away from the greenhouses into the wilds um, we wish you safe I've travels st- I've, still got,
0: I've still got Rog's manager Matias behind me having a, he's enjoying a beer and he's texting probably whatsapping Rog demanding an explanation get, are we going
4: to get a goodbye from him as well having had a hello
0: no I think he's on the phone now. He's, he's, he's on one he's talking on one phone and he's texting he's holding another one and texting
4: that's it. archetypal agent move that isn't it um, yeah oh well um, well we wish you safe travels and we'll uh, reconvene tomorrow night thank you very much Daniel thank you chaps thank you Lionel cheers chaps